You are listening to ReachMD, XM233, the channel for medical professionals. Fortunately for all of us, there's a great deal of research being done on one of the world's most lethal infectious diseases, malaria. In this segment, we will discuss promising new research on both prevention and treatment of this modern-day scourge. Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I'm your host, Dr. Michael Benson, a clinical assistant professor in the Department of Obstetrics and Gynecology at Northwestern University in Chicago. With me today is Dr. Christopher Plough, an internationally recognized expert on malaria. He is Professor-in-Chief, Malaria Section of the Center for Vaccine Development for the University of Maryland School of Medicine. He is also a Doris Duke Distinguished Clinical Scientist of the Medical School. Dr. Plough has received NIH grants for the study of malarial resistance and vaccine development. Welcome, Dr. Plough. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. First, can you share your personal experiences having malaria? I understand that you, as a malaria researcher, actually... Uh, have been infected and symptomatic. Uh, yeah, it wasn't intentional, but I've, I've had malaria a few times, and it is really one of the most unpleasant things I've ever been through. The, the first time I was coming back from Mali in West Africa, and uh, on the plane on the way back, about three hours before I was due to land, I began to get these just really agonizing, roving backache kind of pains, and it progressed into what became the worst headache of my life. And after I'd been feeling like that, just with these aches and pains and headaches for a while, I began to get fevers and shaking chills, and I was pretty sure that's what the uh, the diagnosis was. And, and so that's really the, the the classic is fevers and shaking chills, uh, headache, body ache. You can have a lot of other symptoms, though, so you need to be careful not to uh, assume that if you have a cough that it's a bronchitis and not malaria or even diarrhea and things. Oh, really? How quickly into your disease state did it occur to you that you might actually have malaria? Oh, I think about 15 minutes. <laughs> oh, my God. Yeah, I mean, I, I knew I had been exposed to malaria. I knew what it was supposed to feel like that first time, and, and subsequently I, you know, I was able to recognize it right away. And unfortunately, uh, you know, if, if your audience is mostly uh, physicians, you'll know that sometimes doctors aren't the best patients. And I have to confess that I wasn't taking my anti-malaria prophylaxis like I was supposed to be. The question I have for you is what happened when you landed? Uh, what did, did you take yourself to a hospital? Or? I, I did. I, I went to my local community hospital and walked into the emergency room and, and said, uh, you know, I'm a physician. I work on malaria, and I think I have it. And, of course, they, they weren't quite sure what to do with me. Uh, so they, they came and saw me and took some blood tests, and uh, there was nobody in the hospital, as, as is often the case. There was nobody in the hospital who knew how to read malaria smear, which is how you diagnose it under the microscope. I ended up going down to the lab myself in a wheelchair with the worst headache of my life and uh, reading my own malaria blood smear to make the diagnosis. Obviously, a big tip-off for the physician uh, to start thinking about malaria is a patient who travels to an endemic country. We already talked about some of the classical presentation for uh, malaria, which was body aches and pains, particularly in the back, headache, and high spiking fever. Are there any other variations of this presentation that should uh, make physicians uh, think about malaria? Well, there are lots of different symptoms you can get with malaria. They include the ones you mentioned, as well as uh, you can have gastrointestinal symptoms, uh, abdominal pain, etc. But I think the take-home message I would want to leave would be that fever and anything else in a, a traveler coming back from an endemic area any time in, in the last uh, several weeks to even a couple of months you really need to think of malaria and, and rule it out, uh, even if there are other signs and symptoms that might point you to something else. You, ju you just don't want to miss a malaria diagnosis. So international travel traveler in the last 
several weeks to a few months with a fever and anything else. That's about right. How high does a fever have to be? Does it actually have to be a 105 fever, or can it be uh, a little bit less obvious? There's no particular number. I think any fever is, is enough to start thinking about it, and particularly when people may have taken aspirin or Tylenol or something by the time you've seen them. So, so really, anything over uh, the classic definition of fever, 100.4. Yeah, 37.5 is what I usually use, yeah. Oh, okay, because I think 100.4 is actually 38 degrees centigrade. Oh, yeah, but yeah, there, there, there's no magic number, I think it is. Right, right. Uh, so any fever at all, because the little that I remember about it was that it you know, was classically 104, 105 fever with shaking rigors that you could see across the room, but that's not necessarily No, absolutely not. In fact, if you, if you see somebody who just came back from the Democratic Republic of the Congo with a temperature of uh, 100.4, and say, well, it's not high enough to be malaria and send him home, you're, you're asking for trouble. <laughs> uh, then I have another question. Can it be uh, uh, the, the virulent type of malaria, the falciparum uh, malaria, that can even present or start out with a relatively low temperature elevation? Yeah, absolutely. None of the four human malarias, uh, the more severe one, uh, falciparum or, or, the, or the other ones, appear different in the early stages. It, it, they all look the same clinically. And by the time you get to the point where you can say, based on clinical grounds, that this looks like falciparum malaria, uh, the patient's already in, in deep trouble and, uh, and is going to have a high risk of, of dying. So if it gets to the point where you have severe anemia or cerebral malaria with uh, seizures or uh, loss of consciousness and that sort of thing, they're, they're in bad trouble. You don't want to let it get to that point. Now, you had mentioned the diagnostic test, and that is the uh, smear. What does a malaria smear look like, or, and how does one do it even? It's basically the same kind of blood smear that you do when you want to you know, look at a differential cell count you know, as part of your CBC. And in fact, you can use the same smear that they, they do that on. You can you know, send it down to the lab for a CBC, and they'll do a, a right stain in the lab. If you really want to get a good, a good look at the malaria parasites, you'll do a GEMSA stain. And that's just a, a somewhat more specialized stain that really gives you a nice contrast between the normal red blood cells and the, uh, the malaria parasites. But what you see is, is you see a, a typical blood smear with a nice monolayer of individual red blood cells. And then in the infected cells, you'll see what is described as a ring form uh, or a signet ring. And it, it, it's just a malaria parasite nucleus and cytoplasm. It looks kind of like a ring inside the red blood cell. And with some practice, you can distinguish those from bits of platelets or other junk that you see on the red cells, and then they, they look pretty, uh, pretty distinctive. So it does take a, a little element of experience to become proficient at diagnosing these smears. It does. In fact, it takes a, quite a bit of experience because sometimes, especially in the early stages, there are very few malaria parasites, and you've got to look through uh, a, a lot of fields on the, on the microscope to find even one. The way to increase the sensitivity of the test is to do what we call a thick smear, and that's where you don't fix the, the blood and, and you put a lot of blood on the slide, and the cells burst open when they're stained, and what you're left with is naked white blood cell nuclei and naked parasites without the cell around them. So the morphology is, is really not very good, and it takes a very practiced eye to pick out the parasites, but because you're looking at a larger volume of blood on every microscopic field, you you're, you're have a better chance of catching a parasite. You said something about naked white blood cells. I thought the, the parasite infected the red blood cells. Right. That's just a, a reference to what you see on the smear. So when the blood cells burst, what's left behind is, is the naked white blood cell nuclei, I should have said. And so you can see these white blood cell nuclei and the parasites not encased by the cellular membranes. What is the first choice uh, in terms of treatment 
for somebody who comes back to the United States with a diagnosis of malaria? Well, it depends on two things. Uh, the treatment depends on where they came from and on how sick they are. And the reason you need to know where they came from is to know if they're coming from an area with chloroquine-resistant malaria or not. If they came from Latin America, anywhere north of the Panama Canal, including the Caribbean, we know that there has never been a case of chloroquine resistance there. So the drug chloroquine, which is very safe and inexpensive and very effective for those cases, pretty much anywhere else in the world, if somebody is, is coming back with malaria, there is a good risk of chloroquine resistance, and so you need to use other drugs. And the best ones to use in this country right now include malarone, which is also a tovacone and proguanol. It's a combination of two drugs, or mefloquine, known as larium. And the reason you need to know, of course, how sick they are is because if they have severe malaria, then they actually need to be admitted immediately to an intensive care unit and treated with intravenous drugs. In this country, unfortunately, we don't have access to the best malaria drugs for severe malaria. So the treatment of choice in the U.S. is actually intravenous quinidine, an old cardiac antiarrhythmic drug that just happens to be also a very effective anti-malarial drug. Now, I'm sure uh, many people in our audience are wondering, and why in the world don't we have the most effective drug available for the treatment of severe malaria in the United States? I think that's an excellent question, and uh, steps are being taken to make them available. There, there really, there's two drugs that we don't have access to. One is quinine, and that's been around since the 1700s, and it's, it's available in the rest of the world. The problem is there's just no market for it. And so there, there's no commercial entity that is invested in, in making it available. The Centers for Disease Control used to keep some on hand to donate in cases of severe malaria, but that's no longer done. The best drug is actually uh, artesanate, it's called. It's based on an ancient Chinese herbal remedy. And the U.S. Army has, in fact, uh, uh, put an application into the Food and Drug Administration to license that drug here in the U.S. I'm hopeful that before too much longer we'll have what's really the superior drug for severe malaria. So the second drug is actually manufactured outside the United States but just hasn't been approved for use in the United States? That's right. And again, the, the issue is, is finding someone to sponsor the drug and do the trials necessary to get it licensed in the U.S. when there's uh, really a quite small market for it. Well, I see. So it's really not uh, FDA abstinency. It's just really there's no commercial market for it. Oh, that's right. Yeah, that's right. Now, the FDA has been very, very... Uh, interested in, in working with uh, the people who are, who are trying to get this approved. Again, uh, severe malaria requires treatment different than the initial stages of malaria. I think that's probably the most important take-home message in terms of treatment. Is that correct? Yes, and, and that the treatment for uncomplicated malaria needs to be tailored to where the person came from, so you're targeting them with the right drug. And I think the other critical take-home point is that if you delay the diagnosis or delay the start of treatment, the patient is likely to deteriorate, and what wasn't a case of severe malaria initially over a period of hours becomes one with a much greater risk of death. What's the length of delay are we talking about, 12 hours a day, three days a week? Well, uh, my rule of thumb is that you really should have a malaria smear done within an hour of the time they walk in the door, and you should try to have malaria treatment administered within another hour or two after that. So it literally is a, is a matter of hours when, uh, you know, is the kind of window for when things can really go bad. And uh, I think sometimes physicians who don't see much malaria, which includes you know, the vast majority of physicians in the U.S., uh, may not appreciate the extent to which this is a true emergency uh, because the patient, you know, doesn't look that bad when they have a fever, but then they may uh, have a seizure a few minutes later and never wake up from it. So it really is something that needs to be acted quickly upon. I think the thing that we can conclude with is that really any temperature elevation in an international traveler 
uh, should at least prompt the consideration of a malarial diagnosis and that hours, not days or half days, actually matter in terms of both getting the diagnosis and starting treatment. That's right, and you don't have to remember exactly how to diagnose it and how to treat it because there's help available. If you simply go to cdc.gov, there are hotlines, there's phone numbers, you can call your infectious disease consult, and, and they'll be much more on top of it. But uh, the, the critical thing is to think of it and start the wheels moving to get the diagnosis and treatment. Hours, not days. That's right. I want to thank Dr. Christopher Plow, an internationally recognized expert on malaria and professor of medicine at the University of Maryland School of Medicine. Today we have discussed the diagnosis and treatment of one of the world's most lethal infectious diseases, malaria. I'm your host, Dr. Michael Benson. You have been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD, XM233, the channel for medical professionals. For comments and questions about this program, send your email to xm at reachmd.com. Thank you for listening.